0: London, 1932, a vibrant capital, a place of glamour, of wealth, of nightclubs and cinemas, a place of pubs and parks and slums, full of character, full of life. The whole world seemed to have come to live within its boundaries. Round one corner was a run-down Dickensian alley, round the next a breathtaking row of white villas. Barges on the river, roaring traffic, Mayfair hotspots, seedy bedsits. Leontine Zagen, 43 years old, most recently a Berliner, brought up under the vast skies of South Africa, had arrived in one of the most celebrated cities of Europe. She was, she said, captivated by it from the start. And it was just as well, because Germany would no longer allow her to call it home. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece, and this is episode 11 The Traveller. I read a lot of film biographies. And one of the best ones I've read in years is about Emmerich Pressburger, called The Life and Death of a Screenwriter, written by Kevin MacDonald, who happens to be his grandson. It really is a superb book. Not only does it look in detail at his work as one half of the Powell and Pressburger phenomenon, but it also charts his journey to British cinema royalty from his first days as a scenario writer for the great German studio Ufa. The young Hungarian was very successful at Ufa, and one of its most productive screenwriters. But he was a Jew, and the film industry was eyed up very early by the Nazis as a valuable weapon in spreading their views. Virtually overnight, many of Germany's most original and talented film workers found they no longer had a job. Pressburger was deeply despondent at having to leave the country and learn a new language, because, as he said, a writer who is torn from his working language can be seized by the same frightful panic as a carpenter whose hands have been cut off. We know now how that worked out for him, so he needn't have worried on that score. But being hounded out of his job and his home was harrowing. This is how Macdonald describes Pressburger's last moments in Germany. It was May the 1st, 1933. He packed two suitcases, locked up the Mercedes in the street below. It was impossible for a Jew to sell such things at short notice and left the key to his apartment in the door. It would save the Gestapo the trouble of breaking it down. He went to the station and bought a second-class sleeper to Paris. Leontine's exile from the German film industry was somewhat less traumatic in the sense that she was never formally exiled. She went before she was pushed. Like Emmerich Pressburger, she had contributed considerably to the country's cultural stature with her work, and the rejection hurt her deeply. One minute you had a job, the next someone else was sitting at your desk. Leontine left Germany a year before Emmerich Pressburger did, and she didn't do it for political reasons, or indeed to stay alive. She went because she was headhunted by a British cinema mogul. There aren't many moguls in British cinema history. Alexander Korda is perhaps the most famous. A Hungarian himself, he came to the British cinema via Hollywood, where he had spent several formative years. He needed a constant pool of fresh talent for his newly founded production company, London Films, and even before Machen was out, he was intrigued by Leontine. Just like Karl Froelich, Corder believed that there was some publicity mileage to be had in the novelty of a woman director. The news that Leontine was going to London care of Alexander Corder was greeted a little sourly at the Froelich Studios, where it was one thing to work as part of the team, quite another to be singled out. Leontine was also invited to speak at a special screening of Machen by the London Film Society. This group of film lovers introduced some of the world's greatest movies to British audiences, albeit rather selected and invited audiences, and was at the forefront of developing the idea of film appreciation. For a film to be shown by the Society was to heap it with laurels. A Film Society screening was also often the only way of seeing a foreign film although this cannot be said of Machin, which was eventually screened widely in local cinemas. Leontine was overwhelmed by it all and would always have an abiding respect and affection for the film society. For Corder, she was asked to make a new movie, given a carte blanche, and she began to cast around for material. This meant reading books and watching plays, as well as making contacts. Inspired by her own achievements with Machin, she wanted to try her hand depicting a British educational institution. She plumped for Oxford and a book called Young Apollo by the largely unknown writer Anthony Gibbs, a drama and love story about undergraduate life. She set about her research at once and made herself known to the Oxford University Dramatic Society, from whom she sought advice on filming in the city. The making of Men of Tomorrow, as it was known, was pitted with problems, many of them major. For a start, the script was never at a satisfactory point, constantly going through changes, botched together right to the last minute. Also, Alexander Corder had shipped in his more mercurial younger brother Zoltan as the producer. Leontine describes each script conference as a battlefield, with poor young Anthony Gibbs surrounded by foreigners like herself. But even she came off badly in the constant struggle to make this film. She writes, I had promised to behave and not become temperamental and be branded the female producer. Accordingly, I often acquiesced when I wanted to argue and agreed when I felt about to revolt. Moreover, I did not master the Oxford material as completely as I had mastered the milieu of Machen, and because I was not met with the same enthusiastic faith that I had enjoyed in the Froelich studio, I became timid, the worst mistake a director can make. Here she raises one of the issues that dogged women filmmakers for decades. There was a debate at the time about whether women were even capable of directing films, given that they weren't supposed to have the right stuff. Commentators, both male and female, argued in all seriousness that ordering a cast and crew around needed authority and presence, that women simply couldn't command that level of fear and respect. Leontine must have been acutely aware of how deeply failure would impact on the career of a woman director. While women had figured strongly as filmmakers in the early years of cinema, by the 1930s they were pretty thin on the ground. Only a few years before Leontine arrived in Britain, the country's only female director, Dinah Shuri, had taken Film Weekly magazine to the High Court because of an article that attacked her work. The offending piece was called can women direct films? A decided negative. Surely, one damages, but how galling that a negative critique of her film had gone so far and posited the idea that she was incapable of producing anything decent because of her gender. On the whole, Leontine just got on with it, and the overwhelming success of Machen was such that among the Film Society set, she was considered a genius. But she was very well aware being a woman opened her up to a whole other layer of criticism, about which her male counterparts knew nothing. Men of Tomorrow had a strong cast – Robert Donat, Emlyn Williams, Morris Bradell, Joan Gardner and Merle Oberon – and it's worth stressing that with the exception of Emlyn Williams, none of these actors had had any previous cinematic experience, and the film gave them their big break. Leontine always felt happiest nurturing the careers of young actors and if nothing else, the film can be thanked for helping to bring a new crop of talented performers to public attention. In fact, it's hard to say much more about the film from a first-hand perspective because it's lost and no one has ever seen it since it came out. The British Film Institute has put it on its most wanted list of lost British movies but other than Leontine's descriptions of it in her memoirs, There's scant information out there. Anyway, as far as she was concerned, it was a disaster. The last thing she wanted was to make a mediocre film. But that's exactly what happened. The experience of Men of Tomorrow radically changed the course of Leontine's professional life. She didn't want to be associated with it, and yet didn't wish to remain tied to the sole reputation of Meachian either. Should she quickly paper over the crack that was Men of Tomorrow and make another film? Or should she return to safer, more familiar ground? When the Duchess Theatre of London asked her to put on an English-language version of the play that Merton in Uniform was based on, her heart sank. She was sick of it. But then it offered her a ready escape as well, and that's why she took it, despite her misgivings. Children in Uniform was the translation of Krista Winslow's Gästen und Heute. It was promoted as adapted from the same play as Mädchen in Uniform, which of course suggests that the film was the play's selling point by then. Leontine had never been wholly convinced by it as a successful drama, but there's no question that her association with directing its original version reignited her career in unexpected ways. If she wanted the story to disappear from her life, then she was going about it the wrong way. The stage version, starring a young actress called Jessica Tandy in the Manuela role, was a massive success. In fact, Leontine's husband Victor, who had come over for the opening night, urged her to stay in Britain and to build on the success. She was in demand, and far from beating her with the men of tomorrow Stick, the critics still hailed her as a directorial genius. But there was something contrary always in Leontine when it came to success. She was as apt to run away from it as she was to embrace it. She struggled with doubts and feared potential failure, even at the height of achievement. Dithering and unconvinced about her next steps, she went back to Berlin, where there were plenty of offers of both stage and film work. But she knew as soon as she arrived that things would be not good for her or her family. All the signs were that Germany was changing and that her time there would be limited. She returned to London alone, Victor remaining to keep an eye on their Berlin apartment for the time being. Always restless, always wanting to run to the next thing, Leontine began to long for her old home, for South Africa, and would torture herself with thoughts of how she'd screwed things up with Alexander Corder. Without giving it much thought, she went to the London offices of a Johannesburg-based theatre company, and quickly spun a pitch to take children in uniform on tour in South Africa. They said yes, immediately, and very enthusiastically. Leontine was going home. Her tour of South Africa started in the spring of 1933, and was immensely happy and successful. She had last been back 23 years before, and here she was, seeing her brother and sister again, lapping up the wide vistas, admiring the new skyscrapers of Johannesburg for the first time. She took with her nine women from the British cast and engaged a further 23 from South Africa. She herself took the part of Fräulein von Bernborg and a publicity picture from the tour shows her in schoolteacher uniform looking rather grimly intense as she clasps the young Manuela's head to her bosom. Yet again, the show was a huge hit and she was interviewed breathlessly by the local papers as one of their own, a big name in the old world, back home where she belonged. Very soon, she was back in the old world. Leontine went from the South African tour to Vienna to fetch her mother. She was dismayed while there, to see that someone had hung a large swastika on the Vienna Opera House. Victor, her husband, had to abandon his publishing business, and just like Emmerich Pressburger, was depressed at the thought of having to try and write in another language. Home for a while would be London, and in some ways they would be starting from scratch again. So many Jewish emigres must have felt the same way, with their homes abandoned, their roots pulled up. I know, speaking as a child of refugees, that starting afresh is both an adventure and a trial. You're grateful and relieved to be where you are, but you never planned it that way. Part of you is still back home and always will be. Leontine was lucky in that she was highly respected in certain circles and she was asked back to Oxford by the Dramatic Society to direct them in Richard III. She was also brought to the attention of a young stage superstar called Ivan Novello. Talented, engaging, adored and very attractive, in Leontine's words, a Greek god in modern dress. Novello was a massively popular writer and performer, the British stage and cinema. This Welsh-born composer and actor was a giant of musical theatre. He had already made his name and a fortune by the age of 21 when he composed the 1914 wartime song We'll Keep the Home Fires Burning. Novello asked her to direct his new play Murder in Mayfair. They worked well together. He called her Leo and gave her a thrilling degree of autonomy and responsibility. She loved the excitement and friendship of his glamorous circle. She would go on to produce several hit shows with the Greek god, but first she had another itch to scratch, one that it was impossible to ignore. Leontine had been offered a three-month contract by David O. Selznick at Metro Golden Mare, and ever restless, ever keen to see somewhere new, she headed off on her American adventure. Leontine's experience of Hollywood was perhaps even more of a damp squib than Dorothea Vick's, as we saw in the last episode of The Kiss. At least Dorothea made a couple of films. Poor Leontine didn't even do that much. She sat in a vast, airy office at MGM, occasionally going in to offer some ideas to Selznick, and returning politely rejected. He told her to keep reading books from the huge MGM library for inspiration. She got as far as working up two ideas into preliminary scripts, which seemed to find favour, only to be quietly left behind. And then her brief contract ended. You'd think she'd be very despondent about the whole pointless affair, but actually she took it in great heart. It was just a game. She was more bemused by the whole thing than upset by it. And there was another reason why she didn't go home disappointed. The American Adventure was just that, a fun holiday, which she took with a young South African woman called Louise. I don't know anything about this woman, except that she and Leontine had enormous fun together spending weeks in New York at the beginning and then travelling on across the country to Los Angeles. Poor Victor is forever standing on quaysides or railway stations waving goodbye. When it came to having fun and a holiday, she chose this young woman instead. Victor was there in Southampton when she got back, and so was Novello, and the producer, Binky Beaumont. And Leontine forgot all about Hollywood and launched straight into a very productive life directing musicals for the darling of the British stage. To get some idea of Novello's dominance of musical theatre, think Lloyd Webber. His productions were enormously appealing and accessible, always highly polished and professional, a visual feast, the perfect escape and with the most talented casts. They were a big deal. The Reinhardt-trained classical actress, Leontine, occasionally excuses them as only light entertainment, but they were not remotely slight or throwaway. They were what people flocked to the theatres for, and she was in a charmed position. When she agreed to direct Glamorous Night for him, she was the first woman ever to hold the position of director at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. In the next few years, Leontine immersed herself in directing projects for the theatre, both for Novello and for other companies. Generally speaking, the Novello outings were huge successes, while the others were not. She experienced an unaccountable flop with the play *O oh Evening Star in America by the US writer Zoe Akins. Back in the UK, she and Akins attempted another project, this time starring the silent movie legend Lillian Gish. Another short run. Whether she thought she was selling out or not, The truth is that the spectacular Novello pieces were her greatest successes during these years. It was hard work, overseeing not simply the casting and performances, but the breathtaking sets and special effects. Careless Rapture, for example, ended with a huge on-stage earthquake. For the crest of the wave, they astonished the audience with a massive train crash. Her last collaboration with Novello was on The Dancing Years, which opened in Drury Lane on the 23rd of March 1939. Within two weeks, she was on a boat to South Africa. She had jumped at a request by the Johannesburg repertory players to direct them at the Little Theatre. Novello had been lost for words when she told him that she was going to help amateur companies in Johannesburg and Cape Town. Leo, he told her, you'd make a welcome inmate in a lunatic asylum. But she was going home. Europe was slipping into war. It would take her away from her husband again, but it was when Leontine was restless, when things were too much, that she needed to move. She was a traveller. Even as a girl, when her parents had been urged to give her a classical training in acting, it was the thought of travel that had excited her most. While London gave her a safe berth for a while and provided her with stimulating work and money, it wasn't enough. She had moved around Europe in that period, had visited her once-beloved Vienna a couple of times, shuddered at the change she'd seen in the people, felt what they felt, impending doom. Leontine never ran away as such. That wasn't in her nature. No, she just couldn't bear to sit still, was always searching. Maybe that's the lot of someone who always feels like an outsider. The constant search. Krista Winslow was just the same. I can only find records of one other film in which Leon Zargan was involved. She's credited with directing one scene in the 1948 British musical Gaiety George. I've watched it. It's the big musical number. Presumably her work with Ivan Novello was behind this curious decision to bring in a guest director for one scene. So that's two and a bit films. Not much for a woman who directed one of the major German motion pictures of the early 30s who created a true cult movie that resonates with viewers to this day. Why so few? And what does that tell us in our quest to link the personal stories to the creative process? Do you remember what Leontine said when Carl Fröhlich first asked her to direct a film version of Krista Winslow's Yesterday and Today? But I'm not greatly interested in film, she'd complained. I don't think Leontine was ever truly in love with filmmaking. Her heart was always in the theatre. She didn't have any ambitions in cinema, had only gone to Fröhlich's studio because she needed work and thought he was going to offer her a role in a movie. And this, I think, is why Mädchen in Uniform felt so fresh, so different and stood out immediately. Because this wasn't about her. This film was not her ticket to anything. It wasn't part of a game plan. Leontine was petrified when Frölich offered her the role of director because she'd barely seen any films in her life. Where had she been? And don't think that she would have stood back and been led. That wasn't Leontine. The quality of performances were very, very important to her. She was a very good stage director. Even before Machen, she was carving out a career as a director when women next to never had such a role. The reason why Machen felt so fresh and different to contemporary audiences was perhaps because filmmaking was already going a little stale as it had progressed from silent movies to the talkies. Here was a moment of originality, or something different from the usual fare. Here was a director who was used to wringing the truth out of words and to whom it didn't even occur that you could cut corners and just point a camera and hope for the best. And what's more, here was a woman who felt compelled to put a bit of herself into her work. In her memoirs, she recounts a conversation with her friend Louise while they're travelling around America. I think the purpose of recounting this exchange is to tell us once and for all that she's a stage director not a filmmaker. Directing a play, she says, means living a hundredfold. You come away enriched. But making a film, she goes on, you turn around and around like a dog chasing its tail. You're dependent on mechanics. You're being organised all the time. And so Louise asks her, isn't it the same in theatre? Isn't it just as haphazard? This is what Leontine replies. No, because the author, the artists and I form a unity. A production develops organically. It is alive from the first to the last moment. It breathes. It develops from the first rehearsal to the last. I may correct where I discover faults. I may infuse my own personality into the work. In fact, my work and I become one. At least that is how I see it. And that is what I am always striving for. I may infuse my own personality into the work. I think that Leontine Sagan, with no ambitions in moviemaking, knowing nothing else than her theatrical art, produced Mädchen in Uniform in exactly the same way that she would have a play. She formed that unity with the other women and she let it develop organically. And she let herself, the outsider, the one who didn't always fit in, the restless and the passionate one, infuse this beautiful and personal piece of work. Next time on The Kiss, we return to Krista and find out how her film catapulted her into the role of the celebrity writer and opened up new and unexpected opportunities for love. Kiss was written and presented by Bibi Berkey. It was directed by Mark Lingwood. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam-Weber and original music composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions.